Hey America, this is Anthony Barese, and you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Welcome to the Opera Box Score podcast for Monday, February 22nd. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. On this podcast, my co-host Oliver Macho Camacho and I talk to conductor Anthony Bereze. He's also the artistic director of Opera Southwest. We get his insights into the life of the conductor and his take on what pieces opera companies should be programming in order to live to see another season. Anthony's a smart guy, and the opera references come fast and furious in this interview, so keep your wits about you when you listen to this one. Giovanna Jacques is back on the show, and she helps us break down what to look forward to and what to avoid in the Metropolitan Opera's 2016-2017 season. Plus, we've got this week's opera headlines and our TKO segment, which pits two singers head-to-head in the finale of Racine's opera Zelmira. Listen on to find out who will be the star of Naples. Do not miss who we've chosen to fight to the death. We're America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. What's more, on our show, you get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-218-9BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. Tell us what your opinion is on our Chalk Talk segment or get in the ring and referee our TKO segment. Opera Box score is now. And sitting in the studio straight across from me, Oliver Camacho. It's nice to see you straight in the eyes, George. Well, it was like the radio show last time. Or green? Green? Yeah. Green. Green. Green Mm -hmm. Green eyes, yeah. Well, I feel like a third wheel. (laughs) Those green eyes offset by your ruddy skin. (laughs) (laughs) Cedarquist is like Scandinavian or something like that, right? Swedish, yes. Exactly. So when you go back to Nordic land, do you feel at home, like surrounded by... They're all taller than you, though, right? They're they're much taller than I am. So they wonder who would happen to cross me with a Mexican or something like that? I would love to go to Sweden. I've never never been there, but hopefully one day. Oh, hey, Giovanna. How are you? Oh, hey. I'm so glad you just noticed me. I, I, I smelled the smell, and it was you. It was your perfume. I smelled the smell, and it was bad. How is your... You are back, and how is your back? Uh, I am back we with a back. So you it is poor, better. Poor, poor woman. I mean, we better. teased you, of course, as we, as we do as about you your, always do. It's your fine. alcoholism, but actually... Uh, <laughs> I felt for you. I really did. Thank you. Was, well, I'm so glad that uh, your son was so <laughs> sympathizing. Oh, yes. <laughs> Ben's take on, on her being crippled was, can't she get a wheelchair? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that easy, Ben. The big story in our Chalk Talk segment this week is the Metropolitan Opera in New York City has released its 2016-2017 season. And as the company that kind of sets the tenor of opera in this country as the company that I think we really look to to see what's important in opera, who are the singers we should be paying attention to, what's the repertoire we should be seeing, who are the directors whose work we want to see. I think the Met really does kind of set that gold standard. Um, Giovanna, can you start us off here and give us a couple highlights in your humble opinion? Sure. Um, So I am very, very excited. This is kind of towards the end, so let me start with something a little bit sooner. Um, I'm very excited that there's going to be an opera called L'Amour de Loin, which means love from afar, uh, that is composed by the first female composer to do anything at the Met since 1903. And her name is Kaya Sarriaho. 
Gonna cut you off right there. So why has it taken so long, Oliver, for a female composer to have their work done at America's National Opera House? <laughs> well, the last opera they did was by Ethel Smith. Um, ah, yes, of course, yeah. Ethel Smith. Do you know Ethel Smith? No idea who that is. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I can't believe you're asking me this without prepping me for this, but uh, <laughs> Ethel Smith's opera, um, did, it bombed at the Met okay. back in 103 years ago. So maybe the Met got a little gun-shy about giving a woman a chance. I think that it's more likely that we'll have uh, a female opera composer uh, at the Met uh, than we will a female president. (laughs) (laughs) It's a glass ceiling, everybody. Well, I certainly don't buy anyone's argument who would want to say that there aren't enough female composers out there. I mean... The numbers are skewed towards men, but the fact of the matter is, is that there are fantastic female composers out there, and and the Met, frankly, should be ashamed of itself for not programming some of these great works sooner. I agree. I one hundred percent agree. Take us through one of your next top hits. Uh, well, I'm going to take you through one of my sad things, which is that Jonas Kaufman will not be at the Met this season. Not at all. Very nope. Not even a little bit, um, but he did assure the press that he has future engagements with the Metropolitan Opera. <laughs> Lest we think that he was blackballed. Well, he, he canceled uh, yeah, he Benelis Go, so, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently he got, I mean, I would like to hear if anybody knows, but what is this sickness of his? But uh, he's doing a Puccini Arias concert, I think, sometime very soon mm-hmm. at the Met. I don't know where that's happening. At is the that, Met. At the Met, so. Hmm. Um, and then I'm also very excited for Manon Lescaut, and then a Trepko will be Manon which is really great. And I'm excited for Elizabeth Deschamps to play Isabella in uh, Rossini's L'Italiana in Algeri, which is one of my favorite mezzo roles. Great. One of the only mezzo roles that is in my register. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to... Uh, well, dovetailing off of um, Elizabeth Deschamps, Elizabeth Deschamps was just in Nabucco here mm-hmm. as Fenina. And she'll be doing uh, Italian Girl with Rene Barbera, who's making his Met debut in this role. And Rene Barbera stole the show, mm-hmm. uh, The Rosenkavler. You haven't seen it yet, have you? No, You're, okay. going in a couple weeks. As the Italian singer in the current production of Rosenkavler. And Rene Barbera is a Ryan Center or Lyric Opera Young Artist Program alum. So um, he definitely has a, I have a soft spot for Rene. I'm really excited about... Ida Mineo. It's not my favorite Mozart opera, but it has an amazing cast. Matthew Polanzani in the title role, Elsa Vandenhever as Elettra, and she just sang the pants off of Elizabeth in Saturday's performance of um, Mary Stewart. It was amazing. So I cannot wait. I was just saying, and I want to hear this woman sing Mozart like Vitalia or like Donna Anna, and Elettra is like a perfect fit. And then we get Nadine Sierra, who triumphed as um, Gilda recently uh, in the the ingenue role of Ilya. Uh, also, we're doing, or they're doing William Tell uh, this year, and we talk a little bit about William Tell with uh, Anthony Barese. That's going to be a very epic show to see. And it's something that is not really done that often. I mean, obviously, the overture is extremely famous, but apart from that, it's really not produced. It's a really hard opera to cast. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the tenor role in particular is super, Arnold is super difficult. Those apples and arrows are expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we have Brian Email who uh, is ascending into this role of like the heroic bel canto role. So I'm, I'm really excited to see uh, how that's going to sound um, this coming season. And uh, there's of course the farewell performance of um, Renee Fleming as the Marshallin and Rosenkavalier. 
those are things I'm, I'm excited about. They're going to do Yennefa and Fidelio, uh, two operas that I'm really excited about. I don't think I'll make it out for those. But if I had to go see one thing, it would be that Idomeneo. Good. I'm uh, excited for Yennefa, too. What would be your one thing, Giovanna, that you would see? Um, you know, I would go see Elizabeth Deschamps just because I really want to see her in a Rossini role. But if not, if, if I'm speaking purely story, Yennefa. Sure. Mm-hmm. You guys are so interesting. Yennefa you know? is a really crazy story. Yeah, I know. It's so cool. And <laughs> no one is. ever does it. So that's why I'm excited. You're both singers. And so you're automatically attracted to who the singers are right. that are going to be out there. As a director, I'm the one who's attracted to the directors. And I said this to Anthony, I think it was off mic, however, in our interview, is that I often don't even look at who's singing the parts because, frankly, I don't care. That's really not appealing to me at all. It's all about the director. And how disappointed was I then that the vast number of shows in the Met season are revivals that are being restaged by associate directors or assistant directors. Hey, look, I've done that. That's some bread and butter. That's great for those guys. That's a nice paycheck. But in terms of creating some real art, that ain't it. There's four directors that I think Definitely need to mention here. The first one is Jürgen Flim. Uh, who's Bless you. German. Thank you. Gesundheit. <laughs> uh, he's directing two operas uh, at the Met. It's going to be Beethoven's Fidelio and awesome Strauss's Zalame. Oh, Zalame. All right. I mean, I would I would fly into New York to see one All of right. those Let's two make, productions. Make, make a date. We can get a hotel next door. The Billy Decker production of La Traviata is coming back, which I have seen, and it's phenomenal. You it's like that fantastic. thing? fantastic. It was great. That thing. Is this going to come? You to like blows? the money sh- being shoved up her dress? It was so simple, and it was just so pared down, and it was so mm. clearly told that story. I thought it was just brilliant. I think the first and third act work with that set design, but when they're in the country and they're you know like they're living whatever in their country house, it doesn't feel rich. It doesn't feel comfortable. It's in the music and it's in the language. I think it's about the grand gesture. That's how these German directors work. Uh, Mariusz Trelinski is not German, uh, but his aesthetic is very much so. And his production of uh, Wagner's Tristan und Isolde, I think, is going to be an absolute blockbuster as well. Lastly, five-hour blockbuster. <laughs> yeah, five-hour. You get your money's worth on that one. Sure. Lastly, I got to give a shout out to my old mentor Mary Zimmerman, who has uh, done a number of shows at the Met. Uh, she did. Lucia di Lammermoor. She did uh, La Sonambula as well by Bellini, and she is directing Ruzalka. Oh, that'll be a good show for her. And I yeah. think it's a perfect choice for her. Yeah. She is so whimsical in her direction and so she likes creative. Magic. And she is big into magic, yeah. yes. And Ruzalka, the fairy Mer- tale, the mermaid story. Yeah, this, it's a little mermaid opera version. Yeah, yeah, this woman who decides not to be a mermaid any longer yeah. at a huge cost, mm-hmm. I think is going to be in very good hands with Mary. So, George, why do you think that there's so little creation and so much rehashing? Well, this is something that the other press outlets have really picked up on, I think, when the season was announced. And they felt like the Met was cutting back. These essentially were cost-cutting measures. And that to do... They're only doing six new productions this right. year, and to do more than that would simply stretch a budget. Okay. I, this is my high horse. I think they're doing their audience a disservice by not presenting new ways to tell these old stories. Well, Here, they're obviously putting their money in singers, and this is, yeah, this is sort of the opposite, opposite approach of these Reggae Theater houses in Europe, where they put all their money into the director and the production and then they try to find singers who can do it you know <laughs> and they don't announce their season they don't announce their their cast until very late in the game 
So that's the one benefit of, of this strategy is that they are locking down these top names. It's a good point. I want to look at the statistics for one second. Ooh, and, your opera uh, database the, thing. Here yeah. we go. So of the 26 operas that they're doing next season, let's look at the languages. 11 in Italian, 6 in French, 5 in German, 2 in Czech, 1 in Russian, and 1, this is The Magic Flute by Mozart, in an English translation. What are we to make of these numbers? There's a couple things that stick out to me right away. First of all, that they're doing two Czech operas. Is that too, too many, no, Oliver? that's awesome. No, but- I think it's very a la mode. You, you know, mean with ice cream? <laughs> no, I mean as in in style. <laughs> Which is what Thanks I for explaining that. Actually I mean. thought that was like a scoop of vanilla. No. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I, I agree. I think that these, like the Jennifer has a really horrible story. It's like kind of like a pro-life, pro-choice <laughs> story. Very time and much more like dark subject matter and, you know, not your classic, you know, love story. And uh, I think that... You know, I'm the person who is killing opera because I'm a very, I'm a traditionalist and I'm always wanting to hear bel canto and Mozart. You know, but I need to expand my horizons. And if I'm going to expand my horizons, I'm going incrementally, and I'm I'm more likely to go see a, a Jennifer show. I mean, a, a Dvorak is it Dvorak? No, it's not Dvorak. No, it's it's Janicek. a Janicek, Janicek show that's proven itself, but that still is like you know inching on the timeline as opposed to jumping all the way into like a, what is this uh, prototype festival type show, you know? Oh, yeah. Here's the other thing I don't understand is that one of those shows is being done in English. And I do not understand how this company thinks it can be connecting with a larger audience, not just in New York, not just nationally, but internationally by doing one show in the English language. Are you saying they need to do more shows in English? Absolutely, I am. Do you think they need to do more translations into English or more actual shows written for the English language? The latter. I I think that they need to be Well, most of the 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 operas that are in English are 20th century and 21st century operas. And so that's this season does show a little bit of an allergy towards those operas. That's true. I can only think of... uh, John Philip Sousa's The Glass Blowers as a 19th century opera <laughs> in English. So yes, they are all 20th yeah. and 21st century. So, but, the, but they are leaving Britain off the table and that, that is a mistake. I think that, Huge mistake. But I think that Britain and Janacek are sort of you know, towing the same line there at least with subject matter, you know? Sure. Well, folks, let us know as you start to see these oh, yeah, shows. That's what, before we leave the subject, I want to say that the website that Nate Silver started, 538.com, they now have arts reporting. I never even knew it. Uh, and so there's an article called The Same Four Operas Are Performed Over and Over. And it is just like you would like a very you know, data-centric analysis of the Met season uh, by Brian Wise. And that, that came out on February 19th. That is 538.com. Boom. Nate Silver and I on <laughs> I the same I love Nate Silver. Nate Silver, if you're listening to this, carry me. Make sure that you let us know what you think of all these shows. You can go to our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com. You can also look us up on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Opera Box Score. I guarantee you that we're the only show with that name out there. This just in, the two-minute drill. It's time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know for the past week in two minutes, tops. David DeCiera, the founder and artistic director of Michigan Opera Theater, will step down from his post in 2017. A new leader will be in place by this fall to work side-by-side with DeCiera for a transition period until his retirement becomes official. Darren Henley, chief executive of Arts Council England, has responded to media pressure over forthcoming cuts at English National Opera. He told the company, in effect, to slash or vanish. 
Henley, a former head of the commercial radio station Classic FM, has spent much of his career bashing the BBC for using public money to steal his potential audience. The Virginia Opera and the Virginia Symphony Orchestra owe the city of Norfolk a combined $380,000 for unpaid rent and event fees. The opera owes about $215,000, according to the city. The financial problems come after the city council agreed in 2005 to forgive more than $500,000 combined in back rent. The San Diego Opera has announced a $1 million fundraising campaign, and this comes on the heels of financial troubles from two years ago. Breaking the Waves, a new chamber opera by Missy Mazzoli with a libretto by Royce Vavrek based on the psychosexual 1996 Lars von Trier film of the same name, will be given its world premiere in September by Opera Philadelphia. Long Beach Opera will present the world premiere of Fallujah, the first opera composed about the Iraq War experience. The work is by Canadian composer Tobin Stokes and Iraqi-American librettist Heather Raffo and focuses on the anguish of war, the residual scars of battle, and the search for hope and redemption. Stage director and production designer Andreas Mitisek, who is also Long Beach's artistic and general director and also that of Chicago Opera Theatre, is creating an immersive staging at the Army National Guard in Long Beach. That's the two-minute drill. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. TKO on the OBS. And we are back on Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist hanging out with the lovely Giovanna Jacques. Hello. And the equally lovely. Thank you. Oliver Kamacho. Thank you. My friends, any quick hits on the two-minute drill? So many things. I mean, the Long Beach Opera story, I, before you even said Andres Mitisek, I bet you it's an Andres Mitisek show. I'm very and, excited for that. And the uh, season announcement for COT's 16-17 uh, season comes uh, in a couple of weeks. And uh, I suspect we're going to hear about Fallujah being <laughs> on the COT season, or if not in this season, then in the 17-18 season. Uh, the whole deal with San Diego, uh, we have been covering that story on Opera Now, and it's a long, long story. And to hear that they're back in trouble again uh, and they need to raise a million dollars is really disconcerting. When will they ever learn? Well, they, I mean, you can go back and listen to Opera Now about that whole saga, but uh, it is, uh, it's a problem. And that's a pretty wealthy community that can support Opera. You're telling opera. me. Yeah. It's very Republican. Yeah. As well, down in so San Diego. Yeah. They, they need to figure it out. Like, you know, do smaller operas, you know, or, you know, do a shorter season, do something, but uh, figure it out, you know, um, stop getting in trouble here. Then we were talking about the Missy Mazzoli and Royce Vavrick. There's those names again, you know, mm-hmm. with Opera Philadelphia, the um, t- Lars breaking, Bruncher breaking the t- yeah. Yeah. I love that movie. So I'm really curious to see how that's yeah. going to turn out. And Miss- what a. What a place, Philadelphia, yeah. to put on a show, you know. And Missy Mazzoli is really making a name for herself. Like she's really getting some traction in the opera female world. composer. Yes, is, that, is she female? Really? She's cis. Yeah, yeah, she yeah, a cis she's, female. Okay. Yeah, yeah, she's a she's a she. 
Okay. <laughs> Any quick take from you, Giovanna, before we move on? I'm I'm very very interested in the Long Beach Iraqi opera. Mm-hmm. I'm always one to to want to go check out those those new age things, those people trying to create something completely new, and I'm interested to see what the what they'll do with it. The thing that's great about the Fallujah as a subject matter is that it does invite uh, an ethnically diverse cast casting. Mm-hmm. You know, you, there's going to be no excuse to like have a completely white cast in the show. It's so. hard to find those shows. It makes me think of Mohammed Farouz's Sumeda's yeah. song. Or even Belcanto, you know. A, yeah. I'm going to say Middle Eastern yeah. cast or Belcanto, as you yeah. said, as well. So, yeah. yeah. TKO is our segment where we take two opera singers performing the same role and we put them head to head in an imaginary steel cage death match and we try and pick a winner because America likes winners and with winners <laughs> we can make America great again. Yeah. Uh, Oliver, can you tell us who's in what corner? Yeah, well, this TKO segment is inspired by uh, Maestro Anthony Beresi, who was uh, gracious enough to uh, grant us this interview that you'll hear in a couple minutes. And uh, off mic, it turns out, we were talking about uh, Rossini's Neapolitan era and how there's so much great music there. It was really a time for Rossini to, you know, kind of stretch his his wings, as to spread his wings, you know, and like develop more um, mastery of the orchestra mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, moving into bigger opera houses outside of Italy, like... Uh, Vienna and um, he composed these operas in Naples which had wonderful forces but he was then going to be transitioning his career into Paris where he had everything at his access and he could do these huge huge spectacles uh, so the Neapolitan operas are represent a very interesting time in his career where he could where we hear what he was doing how he was building his brand and, and making it more complex so um, the interest in these operas uh, really came um in the 90s, like 1992, was Rossini Bicentennial, uh-huh. just like Frederick in uh, Pirates of Penzance. You know, he was born in Leap Year, so he's only, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, singers like Marilyn Horne, Rockwell Blake, and Sam Raimi were singing in this time, and they really were adding to the momentum for these Rossini revivals. And then we had scholars like Alberto Zedda and Chicago's own Philip Gossett, who were publishing, yeah, publishing critical editions uh, and staging some of these operas for the first time in the modern era. Uh, Zelmira was the last opera to be written for the Teatro San Carlo. And uh, like many of his operas, Zelmira concludes with a showcase aria for the title character that displays the type of vocal writing Italian audiences expected at the end of an opera. The kind of aria that allows the prima donna to end the night with razzle-dazzle, drop the mic, drop the mic type of flair. And since I don't really want to go into the whole story of Zelmira, I thought it'd be fun for this segment to just focus on one aria. Perfect. Uh, today, we will pit two singers against each other in the aria finale of Zelmira. So I'm going to choose a singer. I'll, I'll be conservative and pick Cecilia Bartoli, uh, whose career spawned out of that excitement for Rossini in the early 90s and who seems to have taken the torch right out of the hand of Marilyn Horne, singing much of the rep that made uh, Marilyn Horne famous. Bartoli's voice started to go in its own direction, uh, defying Fach and hearkening back to singers of the era of bel canto, namely Maria Malibran, who, a singer who sang both contralto and soprano roles, and Isabella Colbran, the wife of Rossini. The documentation of Bartoli's career have made a point of it, and she has recordings and has done tours devoted specifically to the music composed for Colbran and Malibran. George, 
Who do you pick? You've got a real fight on your hands, buddy, because I'm picking (laughs) Joyce D. Donato. Now, here's what you need to know about her. She comes about 15 years after the ascendance of Cecilia Bartoli, and this is a next generation of Rossini singers, right? Juan Diego Florence, uh, Lawrence Brownlee, and, you know, Joyce, to me, she sort of is the, the American diva. And um, she's actually recorded a whole album, right? Of Colbran, yeah. Colbran the Muse, I think that recording is called. Not sure about the title, but her heart's yeah. in the right place. And she also just came out last year with Stella di Napoli. Which should have won a Grammy. I'm so disappointed. She won a Grammy. She did not Oh, she a won a Grammy. Grammy for her recital. Yes, recording. she did not for Stella di Napoli. Still, it she won it. <laughs> she won a Grammy. So. True. so where's this fight starting? What part? So um, let's start with the first round. Uh, this is the declamatory opening of the aria. Uh, this is the announcement that uh, Zamira makes uh, in the vein of opera seria uh, that feels a lot like the opening recit for Norma Sediozzi Voce. God, excuse my Italian. Uh, Rossini is clearly asking for an authoritative tone quality with the rhetorical use of both high notes and chest voice. Uh, we'll start with Joyce in the first round. Joyce sang first, so I'm going to go first. And here's what I'm hearing is just some absolute clarity of those notes. And I think when you're doing Rossini, when there are so many notes, part of the thrill of being an audience member is being able to hear every single one. If you think that Joyce Donato articulates better than Bartoli, you need to clean your ears out. (laughs) (laughs) Bartoli is like the queen of articulation. But aside from that, um, what makes this type of opening really difficult, it reminds me of Bel Raggio, is that um, there isn't really a pulse. Uh, Rossi hasn't given a pulse. It's really allowing the singer to create the rhythm of this mm-hmm. section. And um, Bartoli has just such an innate sense of rhythm that you... Well, f- she's, it's in her native language. Yeah, you feel, you feel the rhythm. She's holding a pulse, and it feels much more organized as opposed to just like free-form declamatory recit, you know? So that's I feel like that the sense of rhythm gives the sense of authority in this in this round. So, Giovanni, are you going to make a call right now? Or are you going to withhold? You know, judgment? I'm going to withhold judgment, but I'm going to say that Cecilia Bartoli is so clear, and her her passaggio is just flawless. That being said, Joyce DiDonato is also quite clear, and for someone whose native language it is not in, I know. I mean, granted, she is a top-notch singer, and of course it should be perfect diction. 
but there's also she's really it's a it's a it's a good fight that's all well, I'll this say. is shaping up to be a good fight yeah so. i mean didonato i'm not going to give you too much on didonato because I, I adore didonato but you know her, she sounds more soprano-y to me than than mezzo-y i appreciate yeah. that you're actually defending your person this <laughs> no, time as opposed but, to last but podcast. that's that's the thing though about like this these roles like they don't really fit into a fox sure. like they're high and low mm-hmm. and you have to be able to bring color to, to the entire scale yeah all right we're gonna go to the next round this is a beautiful, beautiful slow pass, slow section to this aria. Uh, it would almost be the, like the cantilena of this aria, but it doesn't really have a long cantilena line like a, a Bellini aria or whatnot. Um, but this is uh, a section of the aria that has a lot to do with text painting. Uh, this is the happy ending of the opera, and it's a beautiful example of how much joy Rossini could harmonically and melodically ring out of the words. Listen for phrases like amor sincero, which means sincere love, or richiama splendor, which means to recall glory. Non più affanni, no more torment. Felice a pieno, fully happy. Who really gives these words their due diligence? Uh, we'll start with uh, a live Bartoli recording. Uh, this is a concert from the late 90s. And then we'll go back to the Stella di Napoli recording. Here we go.
So when we talk about bel canto, we often talk about um, you know tone quality and vibrato speed being even from top to bottom. And bel canto gets a bad rap for not having uh, a diversity of subject matter, like the type of music that bel canto, ex- or the type of subject matter uh, that bel canto expresses best, are things like pain, sorrow, anger, joy. You know these like sort of basic you know primary color emotions. You know, right? But, love. but within primary color emotions, there is a lot of depth, and I think this these licks have so much potential for you know beauty you know and like variety even though it's all talking about one thing and i feel that is bartoli's you know winning stroke there is that she can really color each note each word exactly the way she intends to and technique is not an issue at all to me it sounds like she's out of breath and she's suffering here (laughs) you know and for me i feel like joyce has got total control and command and this is there's emotion in the singing, obviously, but it's in control, and it's something that is. That if is we go by vibrato doable. speed, it's not in control, in my opinion. <laughs> Giovanna, I am still going to hold my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think there's a clear winner in my head, but I I can be swayed by one last round. <laughs> okay, set it up for us. So Oliver. round three, razzle dazzle. Uh, so this is an aria that. Um, Really is giving the audience exactly what it wants. And it's actually called Razzle Dazzle, right <laughs> off. <laughs> uh, this aria has the feeling of a rondo, uh, which is a simple theme being introduced and then uh, being increasingly more ornamented. Uh, Rossini gives uh, the Zelmira, uh, the title character, one chance to do variations on the cabaletta before launching into the concluding stretta uh, with ridiculous and rapid-fire passage work. To keep it fair... Uh, we were we're going to hear a third singer right now. Just introduce the rondo theme, uh, so that we're not our ears aren't you know um, kind of confused by. We need to cleanse the palate. Exactly. So this is just like a very clean version of the cabaletta theme. It's the mint sorbet of this. <laughs> and then we will five course go with my alamo. Yeah. Then we will hear uh, first Joyce and then Cecilia. Uh, these are both live recordings. They're both with piano, so that we can really focus on the singing. Uh, Elizabeth Futral is the first singer with orchestra and then Joyce uh, from a recital she gave in 2014 and the YouTube comments on this recording say that Joyce had a cold and it was announced before she even started the recital that she had a cold but she still wanted to do the recital so we're going to give her a little handicap on that one and the second recording is the very famous concert that uh, Bartoli gave uh, in 1998 called Live in Italy. Ci stanti, i peni fervidi, i peni di nuovo, 
such a thing as a knockout punch in opera i'm sorry george yeah god joyce sounded yeah. awesome that last recording when joyce was singing was just so strong it's hard to really so argue. here Aww, is corticilia in, in that middle one you know <laughs> no, i'm confusing everybody it's true now joyce dinanato was in the middle recording and she did have it was she, was she had problems she had um problems. you can i mean i wanted to have you hear that piano version because it was so amazing that Bartoli went for that note. She rarely sings that note in public. Sometimes she does some staccato things above the staff, like high C and stuff. But for her to like do a full out high E flat, I think that's what it was, you know, in a live performance is super risky. And that's why we go to the opera. We want to hear somebody like put their thing on the line, you know, and uh, she did and she got it. And it was, I mean, it didn't sound like an amazing high. I mean, there are more beautiful high E flats in the world, but you know what? It was pretty darn (laughs) good. I dare either of us to sing that. So whose arm are you going to lift, Giovanna? You know what? From the from round one, it yeah. was Cecilia Bartoli. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Because in round one, her rich contralto tone really shines through. And there's so much, there's so much depth of color. You know, if, if your voice is a rose, you get the petals, you get the thorns, and you get the leaves. And I heard everything. And... For Joyce Donato's, it was just petals throughout the whole thing. So there was none of that, like, that nitty-gritty. The second round, Bartoli was so playful with her rhythms. She was just a tiny bit behind, and then she'd always catch up. And it was just very, like, she really left you on your toes. And then the third one, I'm, I'm sorry, but she's just, she's just the best. She's I mean, articulation amazing. and also playing with rhythm in the in the stretta. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there were some ugly tones that came out because it just goes by so fast. There mm-hmm. were some releases that were sloppy. But uh, overall, I mean, to, to have that in a live situation, you get that much technique and that much, like I said, that much risk. It's like it blows your mind. You know, I've seen her. She doesn't come to the States that much because she's afraid of flying. <laughs> but I've seen her live twice and she always does something that's like, holy crap. I can't believe I just saw that. You and know? even those things you're calling sloppy, I yeah. love them. I think they're like 
their yeah, what, it's what makes us human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They add to the color. Sorry, George. Well, that was a that was a true drubbing. <laughs> uh, hey, you know, if you want to be a referee on the show, you can uh, drop us a line. Go or if to- you want to suggest a matchup, you know, write to us. Go to our Squarespace site, and there is a uh, contact us form. Uh, feel free to suggest a chalk talk um, segment or to pit two singers against each other in a role or, you know, suggest a role or an aria that you want to hear two singers go up against. It'd be fun to get you guys involved in this uh, podcast. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. Let's go inside the huddle. You're listening to Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. And on our podcast, we're able to interview folks. We have the technology, we have the time. It's edited somewhat, but this is a pretty good take, I think, on Anthony Barese. Oliver, you brought him onto the show. Yeah, so um, a couple of months ago, I was listening to the uh, Saturday broadcast that our local radio station, WFMT, has every Saturday to vote, you know, the afternoon to opera. And when uh, Met is not, uh, doesn't have their broadcast season, they usually play things like from San Francisco or from Lyric Opera. This year, they included Opera Southwest's production of Amleto, which is one of the topics we discussed with Anthony Barese. And when I found out that it was Maestro Barese conducting this, and I went to research more and found out that it's his like brainchild, like that he like found the score and like made parts and like it's been his baby. Um, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I knew that Anthony Barese was in my circle. Uh, he used to listen to opera now. I don't know if he still does, but we once got into a war about ornamentation before I even met him. <laughs> so so he became my Facebook friend years ago. And so we asked him if he would come on the show, and he was really gracious. And the conversation that ensued was awesome. So It was great. He's extremely articulate and erudite and just a lot of fun. So enjoy. Anthony Barese, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great to have you here. Great Oliver you. Camacho, good to see you. In my well. apartment. Yes. Yeah. We keep changing Look, venues. Yeah, looking at time. my uh, Tom Grady recordings. So You know, behind me, that really is a huge wall yeah. of recordings. You should put a photo of that up on the... It's ridiculous. Because yeah. like, I would say 75% of that is available on Spotify. You know? Oh, I, maybe more. It's yeah. crazy how... I mean, yeah. it's... But the bootleg stuff is not on That's Spotify true. yet, so... Right. Anthony, you're in town right now. I am. Uh, but that's not always the case. No. Right? Where are you usually? I'm where, wherever somebody will hire me. Mm-hmm. I am artistic director and principal conductor of Opera Southwest in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I spend at least two to three months in Albuquerque a year. I've also a uh, regular guest at Florida Grand Opera in Miami and... Um, Sarasota Opera in uh, in Sarasota, Florida. So I, I kind of get you know it. how to pick them, man. I know, and right. it's always in the winter. So. I had never, <laughs> I had never heard of Opera Southwest, but then a couple months ago, uh, before the Met season began, the broadcast season, our local radio station WFMT uh, broadcast the Opera Southwest production of Amleto, mm-hmm. um, and I'd never heard of this opera. And I knew just from looking at Anthony's Facebook page that something was going on. But I, you know, how am I going to know about it if I don't go to where's it, Indi- Arizona or something like that? Albuquerque, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Albuquerque, New Mexico, yeah. And this thing was great. This um, Amleto thing, it's like a bel canto show from an um, obscure composer. What's the guy's name? Franco Faccio. Yeah. And it was so good. And the singing was so good. And I was like, oh, I'm going to listen to it a little bit. I ended up listening to the whole damn thing because it was so, I mean, darn thing. Because it was so, so good. And that's one of your, that's like your pet project, this show. That was uh, 12 years in the making, yeah. Yeah. Actually. What are you working on now? 
Uh, well, I'm working on a number of things, but I, I really am a believer. Since this was such a huge success, the Amuleto, it's going. We're doing it in Upper Delaware. It's going to the Bragans Festival this summer. Uh, oh my couple, gosh! Yes, yeah. that's, that's huge. And you know, we should explain for our listeners what that festival is. The Bragans Festival is probably one of the top summer opera festivals. It's a little town in Austria. I think it's on the 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 west side of. It's, it's as far away from Vienna as you could possibly get. Right. And it's an entire town that is funded by opera. I mean, they. They do like Turando on the beach with like in the water with crazy sets and they have like 7,000 people in the, you know, in the audience and they sell out like every night. With like princess heads dropping in the water. Yeah, it's cra- but, but, they, but they make their, they make money on opera. It's crazy. And they have, so they have the main stage productions, which are like Aida and Turando and, and Carmen, the big sellers and they, and they sell it out. And then they have a small theater and they do more experimental things and that's where they're doing Amleto. Wow. That is fantastic. Uh, and anything else besides that? I, I can't well, I, I, as I was, I was saying, that the, since the Amleto was such a big success, mm-hmm. I am really interested now in because when it was done, people said, "Oh, what, do you, what, what work are you going to uncover now?" And I thought, "Well, that was a lot of work, and I'm not sure I want to do that again." But then I thought, "Well, you know, why not?" Like, there's, there's, there's literally thousands and thousands of operas out there that people have never heard of. And how do you like curate that? How do you? Well, you know, I, it's usually what... like something interesting. So the one, I, the one I was, I'm most interested in. Or, there are about three or four that I'm really interested in now, but the one I'm working on most now, um, I read about, um, you know, I did Aida in October and I was reading about the history of Aida and I read about, you know, the first performance of Aida conducted by Giovanni Bottisini, who was a famous bass virtuoso and I've conducted his bass concerti and stuff like that. So, uh, I knew of, but I also knew he had composed a couple operas and then I read that he wrote this treatment of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Hmm. And it was done in 1871 in London for about 10 years, and it was very popular. And then it just disappeared. Hmm. And I was like, okay, I, I, Alibaba, that's a, it's a quality story. And I yeah. found the libretto online, and I thought it was really a charming libretto. I read through it. Then I found a microfilm of the piano vocal score, and then I wrote to record it <sighs> again. Microfilm. I get so nauseated looking at this. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, it was, it was crazy. And then I, I transcribed all that out, and then I wrote to record it, and they said, well, we have the... You know, when I did Amleto, everything was on microfilm. It was 12 years ago. Now everything's high-resolution photos. So they sent me a, a disk drive of high-resolution photos of the entire autograph manuscript. So I'm kind of going through and that And it has now. parts on it, or do you have to make parts? No, no, I'd have to make parts, oh, yeah. Sh- I mean, that's... It, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the whole... I mean, that's really... The, I, what I want to do is I want to look at pieces that were maybe done for a little while and then dropped off the repertoire... Uh, and that really don't have a modern performing edition, and that I would have to then create. So, did you create the modern performing edition of Leto? Um, Leto? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, I created the piano vocal score. I created the full score, and it's been published. All, yeah, all oh. the parts. Yeah. Wow. Ricardi publishes it. You're like our neighborhood uh, Philip Gossett or well, something like that. Well, someday, man. Yeah. <laughs> Philip was actually very helpful in helping me uh, uncover a lot of things with Amleto, just saying, well, this word means this. I think mm-hmm. this is, you know, this is the trombone staff and he sort of moved it on this page and really, really great to work with Philip. Huh. I've made yeah. this point before on the show, which is that uh, there are essentially 20, maybe 50 operas that are done with any regularity, yep. basically. Yep. Coming from the theater, as I do, it's it's hard to believe that, you know, there aren't like hundreds or thousands of plays or, or operas in the classical music world that are being done. But why is that, in your opinion, that there are so few operas done with any regularity? Uh, complete lack of imagination on the part of everybody involved, from the audiences to the to the people who run opera. To I mean, just really a lot... You know, it's it's like there are. I think there are five operas that I can think of, maybe six that will sell out. Period. And if you can't sell these out, you should close your doors. And that would be, it's Bohem, Butterfly, Tosca, Carmen, Torundo, and Aida. And I think 
every, those are the guaranteed sellouts. Everything else, and I mean everything else, is a gamble. Whether it's elixir, people think elixir of love is going to sell. You do elixir of love. I mean, I know so many companies that have lost their shirts on elixir of love because mm-hmm. everyone thinks they want to hear that. But what they really want to hear is una fortiva lagrima, which yeah. doesn't even come till towards the end. Yeah. Elixir of Love, Don, we, we died on Don Giovanni a couple years ago at Aber Southwest. Right. It was one of our best things we've ever done. And Mozart on that list. And, 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 and nobody came. And so I think it's, we, we've had more people come to the unknown things. We did Rossini's Otello in 2012. We sold it all out. We did Amleto, sold everything out. I mean, we, we, we did a, a season once of Italian Girl and Traviata. And we thought for sure, we budgeted that Traviata would sell better than Italian Girl. Completely flipped. And what makes this audience so interested in, in Obscure Bel Canto? I think, well, you know, in the beginning, you know, I, I inherited a company that, you know, was, was doing stuff that, you know, they would do, I think my first season, they did a, a Bohem and a Figaro, and then the next season, they did a Fledermaus and a, and, um, and a Tosca. So, but I, but I said, you know, when I kind of took over, I said, I wanted to do a little bit more weird stuff. And I think the first, you know, if you want to call it weird, I think the first weird thing we did was Chen Rentolo, which is in no way weird. Right? Yeah. And I mean, but for, for, for our audiences, it was kind of a little weird. And then yeah. we, we said, well, let's try Italian Girl and then let's try Barber and then we'll do, we'll culminate with Rossini's Otello and we'll make a little Rossini thing about yeah. it. And, and, and the, in the beginning, the board was very nervous. They said, um, you know, well, what if, what if we become known as that Rossini company? And I said, well, I got news for you. You're not known as anything. right now. <laughs> I mean, even if, even if you're known in a pejorative way as that Rossini company, that's better than what we're, and so yeah. we actually, you know, we became that Rossini company in, you know, in, in New Mexico. And now we're doing a whole new series of Rossini operas over the next three years. And so we've kind of embraced it. So we've got the audience on board. We say to them, look, our house is 600 something odd seats. It's a, it's a small house, but a big stage, a pretty decent pit. And you're all, wherever you sit, you're right on top of the action. Which is, if you think about like an Italian opera house, you know, because they go up, you're yeah. always, you can always see the action. And I said, this is way closer to the houses that were built, you know, that, that the, the pieces were originally performed in yeah. than, say, the Metropolitan Opera, you know, or any, any other huge American opera house. So the intimacy of it, it I think, really works with something like, like Rossini. And so we've sold the audience on this idea of, of it being more like the original. I'm so glad you said yeah. that. I don't want to, like take away time from what you have to say, but I'm a firm believer that, you know, these pieces worked and you have to give them a chance to work and yeah. give them the environment and the setup that makes them. And work, the voices. You know? I mean, like yeah. if you have to fill a house like the Met and you have to sing coloratura like Rossini, I mean, it's yeah. almost impossible to have that weight of voice and that agility of voice. Yeah. And with us, we can hire young singers, people who are right on the cusp of their career who, you mm-hmm. know, many of them have gone into Met careers. Yeah. Uh, we have, yeah, we had uh, Eve Gigliotti do our Italian girl back in, 2010, I believe it was, and she, you know, she's singing the Met. She's singing all over the place, and it was the first time she did a talent. I heard her sing Cornelia yeah. at um, Milwaukee. It was at Florentine? Yeah, Florentine. Yeah. Gorgeous, yeah, amazing, gorgeous voice. Amazing. Yeah. Andrew Bidlack was our uh, Rodrigo um, uh, in Otello, and he's he just made his Met debut last week. Hmm. So, so um, you know, we've had we've had a lot of young singers come in and do their first big Rossini thing. And, you know, we can get people, uh, like when we did Otello, we got Roderick Dixon to do the Otello. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he sings at LA Opera. He sings yeah. all over the place. And we could never afford him. But, you know, Otello was his dream role. And he's black. And he's, and he's African-American. <laughs> he's, he's dreamed of singing it his whole life. And, Hashtag Black History Month. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and he was fantastic. As a conductor, you are sort of at the, the center of all the circles, in, in my opinion. And Again, this is myself, the director, saying this. Uh-huh. It's very gracious. Second, as a singer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, you have to, you have essentially three big 
groups of people that you have to work with, right? You have to work with the orchestra. You have to work with the cast. And the director is one person, but also a very big group. Oh, I would, see, I would say that is all... I mean, 90% of what I do is not even opera. It's administrative work. It's talking to board members. It's meeting patrons. It's I mean, podcasts. Is it, no, <laughs> but I mean, look, I mean, yes. The, so of the artistic side, that those are like the three divisions of it. But but you can't even get to that part before you do a ton of other stuff that, that nobody even sees. But yeah, so sorry, going back to your, 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 your trifecta of, um, yeah. So the, so the, so the directorial staff, the singers and the or- orchestra. And so what is guiding you in those different collaborations? Like what's, what's the most important thing to bear in mind when you're having to deal with those different three of the trifecta? Well, I mean, it, it absolutely depends on where I'm working. I mean, in Albuquerque, I'm the artistic director, so I make all the decisions. And so it's, it's, I can make, I can say this is what, you know, we're doing Tancredi. I'm saying I want it to be, I don't want it to be a traditional production. I want it to be a little bit modern and look at these things you know, the way they did at Naples. It was kind of neat. And so I can, I can guide the artistic vision of even the director a little bit more than I could when I'm a guest. When I'm a guest, being a guest is a fascinating uh, experience. Guest conductor. A guest conductor, yeah, yeah. yeah, because it's not your company. You didn't make the casting choices or the directing choices, and you have got to get along with people. And you've, it's all, you've got to compromise. I mean, as much as, you know, I'm not, when I was younger, I just wasn't going to compromise. But you've got to. You've got to put on a show. And, and you, you could be a jerk and kind of, you know, bulldoze your way through everything. But no one, want, no one wants to work with you when you do that. You know, you've got to compromise. Um, you know, and and in the end, you you you're, you are you are all on the same team, right? It's not. It shouldn't be antagonistic. You're all trying to put on the best opera that you possibly can, um, and and it's it's very rare, at least in these days, for me to to kind of complete loggerheads with people about this. So, and I kind of trust in a guest as a guest that you know they've hired a director. The director knows what's going on. Uh, they've hired the singers. The singers know what's going on. Uh, if they don't, then we're going to get the singers some coachings. But at the end of the day, there's so much as a guest that's out of your hands that you just have to kind of concentrate on what you can control, and that is the orchestra, that is the chorus, that is the singers to some extent. Uh, I with directors, it's it's a fine line because you don't you know as you know it's like I, I don't want to go like hey this isn't working, <laughs> but if it's not working from a standpoint of the singer needs to look at me at a certain point, you have to say so. Have you ever put your foot down as a guest? It's like you know what that's just not going to work, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But I, but it's, it's, these days it's more like, Hey, can you help me here? You know, and earlier it was like, I need her to look at me right there. Uh, but now it's more like, Hey, would you, and and it's, and you know, you, you catch more, what is it? Bees with, or flies with, you know, it's, you know, you do the way you approach it is, is I've never, what I've never done is I've never approached it in a, if it's something I absolutely need. If I've approached it the right way, I've never had someone say, absolutely not. We can't have that. Have you ever been working with a company uh, where you were brought in early enough in the process where you could actually influence what the stage director was doing? Or do they just bring you in like two weeks before? No, stage, I mean, it's weird. Stage, I mean, as you know, as a stage director, you have your vision of how you want the piece to go. And most of the time, especially with the rep that we're doing now... Uh, you know, the, I always say the job of the conductor is to know the piece better than anybody else in the mm-hmm. room. And that's not a very high bar when you're doing... Oh, that's funny. I think that's the job <laughs> of the director. <laughs> well, especially when you're working with obscure music that hasn't been performed in 140 years. You know, like, I, I, I think that that's an easy thing to do. When you get when you're doing a bohem, it's a little... Maybe you're, you know... I mean, I still feel like I am the most qualified in the room. But at the same time, the director has a, their own vision of how they want a bohem to go. And especially if it's something like bohem, you know, I, I, if a director doesn't know... 
how a poem is going to go, then you're you're really sunk. Um, but I've I've had I've been brought in like with this Amleto, like mm. in Delaware. I we we talked about who we wanted to have direct it, mm. and since it's sort of my baby, I said I, I really want Laurie Meeker. Do you know Laurie? Mm-mm. Do you? E. Lauren Meeker, the director. Yeah, sure. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she did the Flair Mouse at uh, Lyric a couple years ago. Okay. She's she's doing. She did a Carmen at WNO. She's doing Manon in Dallas right now. She's everywhere. I mean, she is. She, I, she and I would go way back. She was an assistant stage manager in Boston Lyric Opera when I was chorus master, you know, a million years ago. And so she's the hot, young, you know, everywhere. Everybody, director. Anthony Barese is a very young guy. Don't let him fool you. <laughs> Would you like 38 or something? I'm like 40, turning 41 soon. Oh, okay. But Lori, I said I wanted Lori, and Lori is a great director, but she also has a very strong vision of things. But since it's sort of my piece, she's giving me a lot of leeway about like, well, what do you think here? And I'll say, I think we should take this cut instead of this. We discussed a really important cut in Act 4 the other day, and she's and you know she had some great ideas, but she said, ultimately, it's kind of your choice. But if I went into a project, if I did a flayer mouse with Lori, I would I would be much less, you know, I, I need this to happen, because it, that's, to me, a, a director's show in a lot of ways. You, you know, it's, it, or I, let me put it this way. The extent to whether it's a success or not is more on the director of flayer mouse. Just because of the number of... Bells it's got to be funny. Yeah. It's got to be funny, and it's and it's yeah. so hard to make that. I hate Flatermouth so very much. We talked about this: how singers aren't really trained to be funny, and, well, I don't and even, to do dialogue, sure, either, to deliver it. But well, sometimes, yeah. but most of the time, the Flatermouth dialogue is just. It's just. It's like a. I'm sorry, but it's like a can of stale farts. It's like it's just so. <laughs> it's so boring. It's like watching the Big Bang Theory or something. It's like, yeah. it's not funny. It's it's old jokes. I don't, you know. Please send your comments to Anthony Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but that's really on the, the director to make to make it funny. With, with, with Chenarantula, it's funny in a different way, you know. And I think, I think actually Chenarantula is musically funny. Mm-hmm. I don't think Fledermouse on the whole is musically funny. I do think it's, it can be funny, but, you know. What is coming up that you're not working on that, uh, you know, the season announcements are starting to be made at this point here in February. What's on your dance card? What are you excited to go see? Uh, my biggest thing that I'm excited uh, to go see and do are both Rossini things. So I'm really, I'm come hell or high water, I'm going to see the William Tell at the Met next year. I'm just, I, I, I love William Tell almost. Did you see it in London? No, okay. I did not, no. I've never seen it. I saw it when... You when, heard about this. Like, oh, of course, yeah, the, the, yeah. Yeah. But I saw, uh, I think it was last year or year and a half ago. The concert they, version. The concert the version. Theater, yeah, yeah it, was, it was phenomenal. Um, so I'm going to go, I got to go see that. That's, that's, that's first and foremost. And then we're opening our season next year in October with uh, Tancredi by Rossini. And I'm very excited to do that because, as your listeners know, Tancredi was probably the most popular opera of the early 19th century. Everybody did it. Tanti Pagpiti was the hit number for, for decades. My, that it was their ringtones on their song. It, it really yeah. would have been. I mean, Bonner <laughs> uh, parodied it in Meistersinger. It was so, so popular. And now it's, I think the last time it was done in America was Opera Boston did it in, I think, 2004, 2008. Yeah. But, yeah, we uh, had, uh, I think, Marilyn Horn slash Eva Podler student in Chicago like in 1984. Oh, really? In 84. Like They're doing it in ago. Philadelphia next February. So... Yeah. It's it's a great it's a phenomenal. I wasn't piece. alive in '84, so I wouldn't have been there. So <laughs> <laughs> that's your dance card of, of stuff to see. What's what's on your dance card, or I guess it'd be your to do list of you know 
what irks you about this art form, about this business, yeah, what and needs like, to be fixed and what needs to be changed. I'm glad you asked that because I also want to like incorporate what we're talking about. We're talking about these bel canto operas and that seems to be like your bread and butter right now. Yeah. And like what do you think you know needs to happen? You're steering this company right, but like what do you see going on like in other regional companies, even giant companies that are not choosing the right rep or not doing it the right way. Like I just look at companies. In your craw, you know? I just, well, I just, when I see a company that's doing Carmen and Boehm and that's their season, I just think that's the chapter 11 season. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I love Carmen and I love Boehm and I think they're two, two of the greatest works ever. But if your season is Carmen and Boehm, I just, I don't know how, that doesn't build audience. That, that just, that's a band-aid, you know? Like, you, you've got to do something that is, that puts you on the map that makes you unique and and the companies that that have folded you know unfortunately uh my friend brendan cook who runs opera delaware he says for so many years we've been trying to do uh more with less and we Mm -hmm. can't like we've got you've got you know you're gonna lose money doing opera period Mm -hmm. you can't it's not a money-making venture it never is you know we it it costs us a lot of money we lose money every time we do opera every company does if, and, and, you know, if you don't, I, don't, I mean, give me a call because I've never heard of an opera company but, that makes money doing opera. So you're going to lose the money. You you got to, but then you've got to figure out what can you do. I would love to do new works at in Albuquerque. Our audience at this point is not groomed and ready for that. I think I think eventually they will be, but I think Santa Fe does a really good job at that. I think we have other companies near us that do that. Fort um, Worth. Fort Worth does that, yeah, and 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 I'm my my specialty is is really is really new music, but I don't you know I don't get to. Well, you are a composer too, as composer, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. and, I, and all all the music that I conducted early on was you know Boulez and Ligeti, really you know some of the, the more. To me, could not be farther from Bel Canto. Right, well, see, I, I would disagree, but um, but I but it's 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 just certainly I don't get to use that kind of skill mm-hmm. in in Albuquerque, and and the people seem to love the Bel Canto stuff. I, but I, what I, what I don't, I think that companies that rely on the twenty, the fifty, whatever pieces that everyone always does, I think that is just a recipe for for death, and it's literal death because it's it's just you're just exhuming, you know, like it's just it's a museum at that point. You're not doing anything fresh. We're gonna take a really quick break. Don't go anywhere. Keep it right here. Opera box score. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. We are talking with conductor Anthony Breze, who is also the artistic director at Opera Southwest. Uh, so I wanted to follow up with something you began to say. Uh, you said that you're grooming your audience at Southwest uh, and that they now accept Bel Canto as like part of what they do. Where else do you, how do you see where that audience is going to go? What's their trajectory like now that you are comfortable feeding them Rossini and you think that, you know, all audiences maybe can be groomed this way, like first get them into singing and then what, where do you go from there, you know? Well, our, our big mission, I think over the next few years, we do two operas a year now, plus a New Year's Eve concert and other smaller concerts, but we want to get to the point where we're doing three operas. And the way to get to three operas is to do two 
big operas and one smaller opera. And the smaller operas are by and large 20th century or 21st century pieces, you know, with the exception of things like Dido and Aeneas. So uh, there's a couple of um, there's a couple of smaller pieces that we've been looking at, like Maria de Buenos Aires, which is I think you know, there's yeah a the tango of, opera exactly yeah, yeah. And, and it's been and we we really need to reach out to our community more because we're because there's a lot of Latinos over there we yeah. we, we are a completely bilingual city okay. um, you know it's it's a and, and there's also an Indian component to the the city obviously mm-hmm. so we're trying to reach out a little bit more to that we've had the Hispano Chamber of Commerce come to you know our performances. Mm-hmm. We've even toyed with the idea of doing what they do in Miami, which is our super titles being in English and Spanish. We're not quite there yet, but I think that is the thing that we like. Should. Two super titles yeah. on the same one, screen, one on the left, one on the right. Oh, okay, and, and it's very, very clear, very clean. I mean, it's a little less detailed. Why don't you just use your MacArthur Genius Grant to put the uh, <laughs> in the back of the seats, like at the Met, like where you can choose oh, the God. language? You know? <laughs> well, considering I only do two operas a year in that house, I think it would not be cost effective. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I think if if we end up doing three operas and that middle opera would be a chamber piece. It would by necessity be a, a, a more modern piece. And I think that is the testing ground. I really, really wanted to do uh, this year uh, a piece, uh, um, an operatic treatment of A Christmas Carol by a uh, wonderful British composer named Ian Bell, who um, I've been in contact with uh, online. It was done in Houston, I think last year. It was premiered. Now it's being done in uh, Welsh National Opera. It's definitely getting around. It's a one-man version of Christmas Carol hmm. based on Dickens's traveling uh, version that he would read in public you know, events. It's, it's, a, it's a condensed thing. And it's, all, it's for one singer. And, and what instruments. voice type? Uh, it's, well, it's funny because Ian said it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily a tenor. I mean, it's a tenor ish yeah. voice type but it's really more of a singing actor okay because you that got, sounds like something like michael rice would be really into so yeah yeah he loves christmas carol oh that's true yeah, yeah. I, I, he would definitely be into the to michael rice host and producer of yes. opera now podcast it might be a little high <laughs> it might be a little high for him but he should definitely look into it because it's a it's a it's a, of course michael is like my connection yeah. to uh to christmas carol so, but I, I just want to like plug Bel Canto here because I've I've always been a defender. the opera Bel Canto. Or? <laughs> no, okay. I mean the the genre. Okay, <laughs> I think that Bel Canto gets a bad rap because you know people say how can you express this you know this many facets of humanity with this type of melodic writing you know that oh, this type man, of crazy. like consonant and I think just the opposite I think that you know melody you know can express so much and then you get. Tamper and that's, and the, that's the one thing I think it's, it's, I was talking to Mark Adamo back in, I think November, I was in Dallas and he, he was talking about modern music and he, and he, he pointed something out that's so obvious and I never even thought of this. He said, most modern music, operatic music, where, where they fall into traps, composers, is that it's, it's one syllable, one note. Mm-hmm. Everything is, everything's sort of on, even if it's melodic, it's more or less declamatory. Yeah. Composers are terrified to write, you know, a melisma or like yeah. a string of notes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's bel canto. That's, you yeah. know, that's, it, you, you lose the word sometimes because it's, it's all one syllable and it's going off into these beautiful flights of melodic and harmonic fantasy. Yeah. And that's what a lot of modern, you know, music, I think modern operatic music is lacking in. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, I really wish some of, I mean, I, I think we do need to promote American opera music, but I, I wish that more European modern stuff was done. I do think, I think, I, I do think Ligeti's music, for example, is extremely melodic. I think Luciano Berrio's music is extremely melodic. Yeah. They, they are much more avant-garde in a, in a kind of harmonic idiom that we're maybe not used to. But I think as far as being more 
in line with the bel canto tradition they have ways of of again just having multiple notes on one on one syllable and it creates a melody maybe not one that we're used to hearing but it's certainly more melodically uh, envisioned and executed. Well, I just feel like we're in a renaissance right now because of the work of people like Philip Gossett and mm -hmm. Alberto Zedda, and then singers like Bartoli and even like Juan Diego Flores, like who are doing only bel canto and yeah. have star power. Absolutely. Joyce Donato. Yeah. And then we're raising, I mean, there's a whole new crop of singers who yep. are singing Handel uh, in their undergrad. And then they are, you know, full-fledged singers being able to do these crazy licks yeah. that you know, five generations ago, you wouldn't expect a singer to be able to do, you know? So now let's, let's do some bel canto and see where it takes well, us. Well, I think you know? it's, you know, it, this is like the year of Norma. We just did, we just did Norma and, and um... in my house, it's always the year of Norma. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just did in Florida Grand Opera. My friend, Stephen Lord is conducting it in ENO right now. They're doing it in Toronto. I think next year, uh, Dallas is doing it next year. Chicago is doing it next year. It's funny how the opera world, I mean, you know, this It's like somebody goes, Hey, let's do this. And then everyone jumps yeah. and does Very it. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. Anthony Bereze, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. On the podcast. Really appreciate you having around. Oliver, I'm grateful you're here too. Aw, thanks. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, my friends. Good call, bad call. Let's wrap this show up. Who's going to go first? Me. Oliver or Giovanna. Take it away. <laughs> Sorry, Oliver. I am going. To, I wanted to do mine first because I wanted to get it out of the way because it's a bad call and I don't want to end on a bad note. Nice. Uh, Violette Verdi, who was the principal dancer at the New York City Ballet, French uh, ballet dancer, and who who danced in over thirty eight of the Metropolitan Opera performances, uh, died earlier this month, which is very very sad. She was one of the longest standing dancers and most regular uh, contracted dancers at the Met. So it's a, an aspect of opera that we don't usually look at. Oliver. The Winter Leader Lounge recital that's coming up uh, presented by Chicago uh, Collaborative Arts Institute or Collaborative Arts Institute of Chicago with the beautiful tenor Paul Appleby uh, with Ken Noda at the piano. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, it's coming very soon, so get your tickets now. Paul Appleby was... Um, the Tom Rakewell, Tom Rakewell in uh, Rake's Progress from the broadcast last year. Uh, if you go to the Wigmore Hall website, uh, there's a beautiful like seven-minute video introducing Paul Appleby. That's a really nice thing to watch. Great singer along the mold of like a Matthew Polanzani type of voice, you know. Fantastic. My good call is that I applied for and won a grant to go to Germany and do some research. And I will be taking three weeks over there to meet with artistic directors and administrators, do some interviews, watch some rehearsals, see some shows, and drink a lot of beer. So uh, very excited to do that. The podcast will continue. The radio show will continue. So you definitely want to stay tuned to all that. But I will be doing a special series. I think we're going to call it Postkarten aus Deutschland or something. Maybe a little sexier than that. But uh, it's going to give you guys a window into what's happening over there in Germany. So keep an eye out and an ear out for that. That's our show this week. Our in-show announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. At WNUR, our programming director is Bill Scholney. And the general manager is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. However you listen to our podcast, please let us know what you think. Be sure to leave comments, reviews, and those cute little stars. 
You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Opera Box Score. Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. You can email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com and suggest a Talks Chalk segment. What topic would you like to weigh in on? Or suggest a TKO matchup. Which two opera singers do you want to see duke it out? On our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, you can stream archived episodes and learn more about our team. We're back live in studio on Monday, February 29 at 9 p.m. Central on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago and WNUR.org slash pop-up. I'm George Cedarquist for Oliver Camacho and Giovanna Jacques asking you to keep the conversation about opera going by sharing this podcast. Giovanna, what's in the opera crystal ball this week? You know, last time I said that Romeo and Juliet was going to tank. So far it has. So I just want everyone to know that. Wait, uh, today's the opening night. You said that Rosen Cavalier was going to tank. I did? Yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet's going to tank. 